welcome to Learn It From The Layman. I'm Carl Christensen, together again with Matt and Cameron Christensen. Tim Cox will be joining us later on. Uh, and this is the beginning of a new development for our Learn It From The Layman podcast. We're going to be doing a 12-part I'd say mini-series, but 12 parts is a lot for a mini-series, so let's just call it a series, an archive, if you will, on uh, history. Um, we're going to be handling uh, the uh, from the turn of the last century, so we're looking at the 20th century and, and onwards. We're going to be handling every uh, and discussing each decade in turn. So uh, today's subject will be the turn of the 20th century, the 1900s, uh, so from 1900 to 1909 or thereabouts and uh, we will discuss lots of different aspects of this decade so we're going to be handling science and technology we're going to be handling wars uh, culture uh, all kinds of things so uh, each one of us uh, will be uh, discussing different aspects of this decade and uh, we'll be uh, trying to take this from a worldwide perspective given that we're all americans it's probably a bit of an american bent so apologize to our international audience, but uh, we'll do our best, and hopefully this is interesting to everyone. So I will kick us off today, and I'm going to be discussing science and technology. So as you can imagine, from the uh, 1900s, uh, there's a lot that's happened, um, and a lot, of hap a lot of things happened around that turn of the century that were very influential. Uh, I guess the most important ones, ones that you potentially already know about, are uh, so the automobile. Um, so in, in the 1900s, we got the Mercedes. Uh, essentially, the internal combustion engine was now being applied in different ways, and car, uh, a car was one of them. Um, and then another uh, very formative one that you may also already know about are the uh, the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk flying for the first time. So uh, that one I want to spend just a, a minute discussing. So that one, there is a little bit of, um, well, so first uh, the background on the Wright brothers. So they obviously are trying uh, to uh, get a, an airplane and they uh, create, they created a, the 1902 version of the Wright glider. It was the third free flight glider built by them and tested at Kitty Hawk. So that Kitty Hawk was where they were doing their testing. Um, and, and all kinds of, and Matt might be able to tell us a little bit more about this. Matt has more knowledge in the air, area of aircraft, but uh, they had all kinds of test runs and gliders. And their first uh, official flight was in 1903. The, their airplane, the Wright Flyer, performed the first recorded controlled, powered, sustained, heavier than air flight on December 17th, 1903. Um, and said on, the, on in that day, on their fourth flight, Wilbur Wright flew 279 meters in about in almost exactly one minute. So 279 meters doesn't exactly sound particularly impressive, but I guess, you know, given that man had never uh, flown before, we should uh, give them a bit of a bit of leeway. So um, obviously that was a very formative uh discovery and uh, very important for uh, the transportation industry and, and uh, made immigration significantly easier, things like that, and world travel. So um, I mentioned the car already. Let's see. Oh, one that I thought was quite interesting. Uh, this one, not particularly uh, 
important. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can say that actually. Uh, Nintendo, which I did not know, was um, uh, apparently originally an, uh, a playing card company. And in 1902, uh, so they've been around for, uh, was founded actually in the 19th century in 1889. But in 1902, um, Japan opened uh, up this this company, Nintendo, for global trade. And so uh, they were the first to produce these Western star style playing cards. And uh, so obviously uh, they were not doing any computers at the time. There were no computers, but uh, very interesting that Nintendo, before their uh, foray into video games, uh, developed playing cards. And that was the original uh, impetus for the company. So let me add one or two more things I can't omit the theory of relativity. We've discussed many uh, physics podcasts and Einstein and his publication of the the special theory of relativity happened in in the 1900s. So in the year 1905, uh, published his uh, his special theory of of relativity, uh, along with a bunch of other things. and uh, including the famous equation e equals mc squared. Um, there was also a man named Planck who uh, did uh, work in um, radiation. And so he, Planck's law, Planck's law of black body radiation. So Planck's constant, I believe, is a very um, notable number. Um, lots of things happening. Oh, the third law of thermodynamics was, uh, I guess, put forward formalized potentially um so uh i didn't discuss the automobile too much i did want to give that just that was more than the short little shrift i gave it um so the uh gas-powered uh mercedes car uh happened uh, so in 1901 the first gas-powered mercedes mercedes rolled off the line um and it had a six liter four-cylinder engine outputting a whopping 35 horsepower so not particularly efficient, um, <laughs> but uh, a big change from obviously the uh, horse, actual riding a horse. Um, and so that was uh, so all of these, I guess, as, and this, as I was doing some research in this should be taken, especially technology with a, with a not a grain of salt, but with an understanding that these things take time. Right. Most um, discoveries and inventions were you know more than a year or two in the making and so while we record a specific date on which uh, something happened a lot of these things were kind of in the works for for a decade a decade or more prior to the date that we're giving um and not to mention they're building on 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 uh, thing work that other people did so when we credit one particular individual like the wright brothers i guess uh, there's a brazilian um Santos Dumont, pardon my Portuguese, uh, that uh, did a flight uh, shortly after the the Wright brothers, and that some some Brazilians credit him to be the first um, actual air uh, airplane, the, the inventor of the first airplane. So. Um, Lots of these things are kind of group efforts. Uh, it's in it's uncommon to find a scenario where some person invents something that is so out of the um, the current state of technology and science that it that it blows everyone away. But I, that 
I guess, would be an Einstein type of person. So that uh, the 1900s does inc- uh, include one of those types of individuals. So uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Uh, I have um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about demographics as well. So in the 1900s, uh, I have got some some facts here, some interesting uh, comparisons of wages and hours of uh, people across the world. Um, and so some popular occupations at the turn of the 20th century were blacksmiths, bricklayers, carpenters, uh, machinists and plumbers. Um, and these people all worked um, potentially uh, all of them, according to the census information they had, is they all worked more than 50 hours a week. Um, and uh, and made let's see the the highest earner these the bricklayers uh, at the turn of the century earned a, a whopping 46 cents an hour. Uh, I guess if you round up, it would be 47 cents an hour, and you cer- certainly wouldn't want to shorten that penny. Um, and uh, let's see, blacksmiths were the no no machinists, which I'm not entirely clear on what they did clearly worked with machine of one variety or another, uh, were, were made less than a quarter an hour. So, and that's in the United States. So let's talk a little bit about internationally. So bricklayers um, and carpenters, so this is for the UK. Bricklayers in the UK made uh, approximately 18 cents an hour. And I assume this is converted into the same type of currency, um, given that this is uh, uh, all compiled together. So, um but yeah, 18 or 19 cents an hour, I guess, once again, rounding up. Um, and, uh, and they were actually doing better than machinists. Once again, blacksmiths, uh, they were both making about 16 cents an hour. So it really puts into perspective the, um, you know, the inflation and the um, amount of money made these days. Um, shocking. Yeah, I mean, quarters or less of a dollar. Uh, let's see what other part of our population. Germany, we've got the numbers here, bricklayers and carpenters making uh, about a dime an hour. So uh, once again, not a lot of money being made at the time. Um, Demographics wise, also in the United States in the 1900s, there was about a 21% increase in population. So there was uh, at that time, it was about 76 million people that lived in the United States. Um, Median uh, age for marriage was uh, Men were married around 25 or 26 years old. Women uh, between uh, 21 and 22 is their median age. Interestingly, um, that was actually, it had already started getting younger um, at that point, the median age of of marriage, uh, but it would get younger and younger for for decades before it's uh, subsequently turned around, obviously, and now median age of marriage is significantly later. But uh, that's a little bit about the demographic uh, trends of, of uh, the 1900s. Okay. The wage calculator, um, $1 in 1900 is worth approximately $30.85 today. Yeah, that is a good point, I guess. So for uh, though, so you would say if they were you know, worked about nine hours a day, which I guess they worked even a little bit more than that. So let's say but they worked on average 10 hours a day. And so uh, they're making uh, some of these making a quarter an hour. So they're making 250. Um, and so if you say $30 uh, for uh, $1 back then, so what are they making? Uh, $75 a day, which uh, 
I guess a lot of people would take right now. So um, I think it's about about the same. I guess things haven't changed too much. Anyway, that's a little bit about the uh, science and technology and demographics of the 1900s. Let me kick this over now to Cameron. Cameron, do you have, uh, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about art and culture. Anything else? Um, I'm a very uncultured person, just so you know. Okay, well, good. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, uh, a little bit art, culture, maybe some music, film, you know. It's an extremely broad thing, so we'll, we'll see what we can do. All right. Kind of a good thing for art, I think we could talk starting um, Pablo Picasso and George Braquie. People are going to probably slaughter us this, that I <laughs> can't pronounce the right French or whatever. Um, invent Cubism, which is... I think a great leap in the art world. Um, I used to disdain cubism till I got a little bit more into it, and there's a there's a lot more with it. It it really opens up to some of our, our modern things that we do now, but also just to um, start to look kind of in the abstractness of art and kind of really start letting people kind of you know. A face doesn't have to be a circle or an oval, you know, it, it can be a square or it could be a rectangle, you know, it really kind of lets you look, look in things a little bit more and you can still get your idea passed through without doing traditional uh, classical, I would say classical design figure. Sure. Constantine Brancusi walks from Bucharest to Paris and uh, revolutionizes the sculptural uh, world. And um, he becomes quite as radical as his life hero as Rodin. So he kind of redefines or defines sculpture in the art world. Um, kind of kicking, we're going to kick over here to the United States. Um, Eastman Kodak. Um, invent the brownie camera, which is actually a really significant um, thing and uh, kind of everyday art. Um, it cost about a dollar to buy, which we now know took some people a little bit longer to buy, but it's not excess, you know, it was not out of the realm that most families in America could save up and buy a, a camera now. And it was 15 cents for a film. And it really opens up um, families and a lot of things like that to people can start taking photos of where they go, what they see, stuff like that, which is really, uh, I think, quite an advancement to thing where things have led. I mean, now if you see a teenager without a cell phone taking a selfie, you think there's something wrong. So... I think um, there's that. Edward Steichen uh, uses a photograph uh, with him, takes a self-photograph, I should say, with him basically in front of a fine art painting, um, kind of signifying that uh, photography is a fine art as well, not just frivolous. Frivolous, that's the word I'm looking, not a frivolous art. 
some people would say it's an overrated. I think it's a fairly significant thing for photography. And um, because of that, and also because of the brownie and other things like that, um, a lot more newspapers are taking photographers at that or photographs during that time as well. And um, kind of kicking back to what Carl said, there's uh, pictures of Orville Wright taking off and flying for 12 seconds. Taking so that's that's also so that was the uh, I, as I was doing some of my my reading for science technology. That's when we started being able to do, do at least some degree of color photography, though it wasn't. Uh, yeah, Kodak pioneered a lot of color processing. Um, there was color before then, but not as... He and Eastman uh, really kind of pioneered a lot of those things. Well, maybe not pioneered, pushed. Once you get into photography, it's really interesting. Um, a lot before your film, your uh, wet plate collodion, which basically you um, use you dip a plane of glass and cyanide and then you coat it with a silver nitrate. And when you expose the silver nitrate to light, it creates the, you know, reverse image, your negative. And then you, you know, anyway, so that's how you kind of made uh, photos up till film kind of became more popular, which did come before the 1900s, but you know, it was late 1800s, but anyway, so you have this extremely dangerous process now going to a much more simpler process and then going to, oh, we can start capturing color more and stuff like that. So mm. okay. let's see. Uh, film, uh, one of the little cartoons that you constantly see uh, with uh, George Millet's, um, The Trip to the Moon, where the rocket goes into a man in the moon's eye. So fairly famous scene that you see all the time that was in 1902 and that was like the beginning of like science fiction kind of stuff right yeah it was kind of yeah i guess that's but, what i uh, that's what but, i saw when i was looking around again, so. jazz greats ella fitzgerald and louis armstrong were born mm-hmm. in the early 1900s um the jazz hadn't started, obviously. Well, let's see. Jazz. Well, it, it it I did read it a little bit. Um, Jelly Jelly Roll Morton claims that he invented jazz, um, which is a little bit like when Al Gore said he invented the internet. <laughs> right. It's no one really. I mean, I don't think jazz was necessarily you know made by one specific person um it's definitely uh kind of evolved and changed through um a lot of uh african influence and songs and stuff like that and kind of okay here's an interesting little tidbit um the sheet music sales for Let Me Call You Sweetheart reached two billion. And that's in nineteen hundred. Two billion dollars. So that's Wait, a lot of money. Two billion in nineteen and then ten. Sheet music sales reached two billion dollars a year in nineteen ten. Wow. 
led by a six million dollar seller let me call you sweetheart interesting so probably not sheet music i'd imagine these days is not exactly as big of a uh, industry as it was then no i would imagine it's not but i mean just if you think about that especially with the the things like that i mean two billion dollars is an astronomical amount of money uh converted to our currency here i mean that's i mean you're, you're you're looking i guess i mean it's not quite a trillion but i mean it's still it's it's a lot of money it's, it's a lot of money um barbershop quartets were really um popular in the early 1900s and the top selling artist was the immortal harry mcdonald and i actually have no clue who he is i said i don't know who that is so he must but really not be immortal <laughs> Chekhov wrote his last play in 1904 the cherry orchard I i've seen i have seen the cherry orchard i have as well yes i think that's kind of interesting i mean oh elmo roper that was the magazine the newspaper here we go elmo roper i don't know if he was just born never mind that's not that great <laughs> it probably was to his mom anyway well he he basically made chain newspapers which now you have much more bigger mainstream media because of Elmo Roper, which is maybe not a great thing. <laughs> Boris Rosing in Russia and A.A. Campbell in England start to suggest to use to the use of cathodote brains to reconstruct images for TV receivers. So right there in early 1900s, you got some scientists starting to design the TV. Yeah, and that that goes back to the idea that, like I said before, this, uh, the TV wasn't officially invented for a while still. But, yeah. you know, the work uh, of new inventions and technology is a work of actually multiple decades generally. Um, yeah, and then we so credit it on a particular date. But, yeah. If you're from Utah, you credit the inventor to Farnsworth, Farley T. Farnsworth. Right. For Utah. Yep. Okay, great. Well, thanks, Cameron. Let's um, okay. let's move uh, so from arts and culture now to uh, the opposite of arts and culture. Matt's going to tell us a little bit about war and uh, I think natural disasters or those types of things, Matt. So wars and such from 1900 to 1910, it was on a global scale. It was kind of quiet, although there were some pretty intense conflicts uh, from the American side. Starting in 1899 and continuing until 1902, we had the Philippine-American War. And this is uh, a follow-on. The Philippines used to be a Spanish possession or colony, and the, the United States took possession of the Philippines uh, you know, some, some years back in the late 1800s. At some point, uh, a number of Filipinos decided that they would really like to be independent, and the U.S. said no, and they said, okay, we're going to have a revolution. Places tend to do that. I mean, Americans know all about colonies rising up in revolution. Uh, so so this happened, and it, was, it, it eventually ended in an American victory. Um, that said, President McKinley did recognize that uh, 
you know, some changes were needed. And, and following this war, a schedule was laid out uh, for the Philippines to receive independence, and they eventually did. They were originally scheduled to receive independence in 1944. Unfortunately, World War II kind of threw that off, and, and the Philippines were later granted independence in, in later in the 1940s. Um, that war was was notable for being particularly brutal on both sides, uh, but the the American forces adopted a kind of scorched earth zero tolerance policy towards uh, the populations there. Any villages that were suspected of harboring revolutionary or guerrilla fighters were razed and their inhabitants raised with it in many cases. Uh, the, revolu- the Filipino revolutionaries were uh, equally as, as barbaric in their treatment of Americans at times. Uh, torture, execution, murtil- mutilation of prisoners was was pretty commonplace, and and this happened on on both sides, unfortunately. So it was it was a pretty brutal war, uh, f- small scale relative to some of the other wars that we've had, but pretty uh, bloodthirsty on both sides there. Um, Any particular reason why it was, or that you know of, that why that it was so uncivilized? I think I I can only speculate. Um, okay. There was, I mean, these days there's a lot more accountability and a lot more eyes watching things that go on in the battlefield, and you see that in places where those eyes are missing, uh, that brutality returns. We, you see a lot of that with ISIS. Um, in, right. in the things that they were doing, um, and in, in some cases the eyes were there, and they exploit that, and they were they were glorying in it because well they're ISIS. Right. Um, but you know, in, in as you start to have uh, battlefield photographers, reporters, and just general awareness of what is going on in in the world and on the battlefield, there's an accountability there, and and. The other thing is, uh, at least on the U.S. military side, there has been a significant cultural shift toward trying to be the good guy over the last hundred years. Uh, at this point, back in 1902, uh, you know, being the good guy meant something different. It meant uh, vanquishing the natives who, who dared to oppose the Americans. Uh, it meant that if they raised an arm against you and heaven forbid they should kill one of your comrades, you're going to repay that blood a thousandfold. Mm, right. Um, you contrast that to uh, the rules of engagement that our forces operate under in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's very, very different. Um, but anyway, that was the Philippine-American War. Uh, pretty savage on both sides. Not, uh, not anyone's finest hour. But it did set the stage for eventual Philippine independence, which is a good thing. There were a number of clashes going on in the Middle East in what is now Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and these were different battles that kind of set the stage for Saudi Arabia to become a thing. There was the unification war down on that peninsula and, and its predecessors and successors and, and, and a number of things where uh, different leaders would would rise to power, lose power, become exiled, unexile themselves, 
and and back and forth and and that decade kind of set the stage for the formation of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the unification of those territories that that are in that area. Uh, and then finally, in uh, on, on on kind of another part of the world, you have the Russo-Japanese War, which happened during 1904 and 1905, where you had the two powers trying to contain each other. Jap- Japan was not a world power yet, but they were fearing the Russians, who were continuing to expand their influence. And Japan had imperial ambitions and wanted to expand its sphere of influence. And so the Russians, as they were trying to expand in in Manchuria and and get ports down in that area that would be warm water ports that would be accessible year-round, the Japanese didn't like that. Uh, And so they went to war with the Russians and... Uh, they they requested that uh, they they first attacked that a, a Russian port it was a Chinese port that was being leased to the Russians uh, took that offered the Russians an armistice they would give that port back in exchange for recognition of of the Korean Peninsula as being under the Japanese sphere of influence so this is a little bit weird you have the Japanese bargaining Korea with the Russians. Um, anyway, you, you had two imperial powers going at it. Uh, the whole war was kind of a string of Russian defeats, and it ended in a Russian defeat, and it and and it really saw the emergence of Japan as a world power, as a world military power. Um, so. That happened 1904 to 1905, and and that's kind of the the big ones for for wars in that section or, or that section of time that period of time. That was a weird way to say that. Sorry. <laughs> Can I bring up one that I saw that I didn't know was you? Oh, actually, to be fair, I'm not sure I ever knew. Once again, my layman uh, credentials in full display. I didn't know the Philippines were actually a colony of the United States at any point. Um, and also well, I don't know about that, colony, maybe, maybe more like a possession, like, okay. um, like you have, you know, the Virgin Islands. Okay, sure. Um, but I also didn't know that, that Cuba was, uh, once, uh, American or United States property. Um, and I was just reading that as well. So that is, that surprised me given that they speak, well, Spanish there, I would have assumed it was a Spanish, uh, you know, island. Yeah. Well, you know, tune in next time for when Learn It From a Layman goes backwards and does some of the history in the 1800s. Not really. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you had the um, Spanish-American War, which was largely fought over Cuba, but that was in the 1800s. And so we do not count that. Uh, What you do have in the 1900s is Cuba in, in 1902, Cuba gained its own independence now, for for some reason, that was able to happen, uh, and and there was no, you know, that that that's great. Uh, when the Philippines wanted their independence, uh, that didn't go as well, and well, that didn't go as well. No, <laughs> that that just had a war happen. Now there, 
there there's different ways that people go about asking for or demanding independence and who knows maybe that was part of the contribution but anyway yeah there was uh, some decolonization or decolonialization i don't know i don't know either one other thing though um sure before our australian listeners um Australia is still beholden to the crown. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it says that in 1901, on January 1st, the colonies in Australia federate, forming the Commonwealth of Australia. So I don't know. Is that like a date that they celebrate? Because, you know, that seems like uh, that would kind of be doubling up on holidays which is no one wants to do that you want like a your own independent holiday yeah having australia day be on the same day as new year's yeah exactly Who wants i don't that? know I, I i don't know maybe that's when kangaroos are in season and you get the best wallaby grilling i have no idea i'm just, oh just talking now all right moving on that's not okay. wars though We're, it's not no but it is you know in the, that kind of uh, well, okay, maybe it's not. All right, Matt, do you have more? Yeah, uh, why don't why don't we? Because my uh, sections are so disparate in like what they deal with. Why don't we jump to Tim and then come back to me and I'll do uh, dis- well disasters and things. But yeah, let's let's have Tim do uh, politics and economics first. Would that work? Okay. Yeah, sure, Tim. Now you're going to discuss uh, with us. A little bit about, uh, I believe, politics and uh, tell us a little bit about what was happening in the turn of the 20th century. All right. So there was, as it turns out, a lot of stuff going on at the turn of the 20th century. Um, So politics wise, the it kind of overlaps with some of what Matt was talking about. So I'll I'll be brief. But, yeah, you've got um, I'll talk about some assassinations because it turns out a lot of people got shot in the, um, you know, in the early 1900s. Um, William McKinley, who was the American president, got shot. And um, so his vice president, Teddy Roosevelt, became president. Interestingly, Roosevelt had initially not wanted to be McKinley's vice president. In fact, he wasn't for McKinley's first term, but when uh, McKinley's vice president died of, I think, a heart failure, heart disease or something in 1899, um, Roosevelt was, uh, you know, persuaded to to be on the ticket as the vice president. And uh, and then McKinley died shortly after. And Roosevelt spent, I think, less than a year as vice president before he became president. So. Um, that was significant. You also have the prime minister of Japan being uh, assassinated, but um, lots of people got shot. So it's kind of a bummer that way. You, the, the Boer War, is, as Matt brought up, was a, a kind of um, the, we're seeing the end of the colonial period. And you've got places like Norway and, as you guys have already mentioned, Spain uh, becoming independent um, although Britain was still uh, kind of approach, uh, pushing towards its peak in colonialism, the Boer War being a, um, a its victory in the Boer War securing its uh, 
primacy in the in South Africa. Um, by the way, uh, this may be because I grew up with five sisters and I had three daughters. But if you have seen the movie A Little Princess, um, the Shirley Temple version or the remake, then you know about the Boer War. That's where her dad is injured is in the Boer War. Also, interestingly, the Boer War um, launched the political career of a fellow named Winston Churchill. Oh, I know. He, yeah, you know. Winnie is what I called him. Winnie, yeah. Uh, all his friends, right? The, right. No, and he, he was, so he was the, actually, the um, grandson of the Duke of Marlborough, and his father had actually been uh, one of the highest, uh, occupied one of the highest positions in Britain as a ch- the chancellor of the exchequer or whatever, kind of, I I'm not, uh, you know, in charge of finance for Britain and, you know, probably on a level of like, you know, secretary of state or something um, before he had a falling from grace and ended up, you know, um, dying alcoholic and and, you know, anyways, he, he had a tragic end. But Churchill. So he was this kind of, you know, son of and he was the son also of a, a famous American actress. So he's kind of growing up and in this you know, in the spotlight, but he runs for parliament and doesn't make it, isn't elected. So he's trying to figure out what to do with his life. He's trying to make a name for himself. So he actually goes to South Africa as a, um, he, he gets a commission as a journalist to go to, he, he was actually one of the voices, um, like calling for war, kind of a, a warmonger, um, in before the war and then when the war starts he he's looking for glory and he's not in the military at that time so he gets himself a job a really good paying job as a journalist goes down there and gets gets himself as close to the action as he can and then goes out on a patrol in an armored train that gets captured by the boers and he's captured so he's a prisoner of war and he eventually escapes, um, makes his way back kind of adventure novel style and um, and, of course, becomes an instant national hero. And that catapults him to glory and eventually to a position in parliament. And, you, you know, the story from there. We'll probably hear about Winston Churchill in a later decade or five. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, so just interesting how all these things wind together. Okay, so other things politically going on back home in the United States, um, the so McKinley had run against William Jennings Bryan, and the uh, one of the big debates at the time was they they were coming out of a recession in the late 1890s, and Bryan wanted to um, to mint silver and just mint a lot of money. And um, to to make you know money more available, he felt it would stimulate the economy and and help you know the lower classes. Of course, then as now there were concerns about inflation and so forth. It's interesting how these these um, topics, as dusty as they are, they they never leave us. You know, inflation and monetary policy, you know, is still in the national conversation. Um, this is a cultural thing, but. The Wizard of Oz, the book by L. Frank Baum, was published in uh, 19, 
think 1900, 1900 or 1901. And a lot of people think that it had, um, it was a, you know, an allegory for all, all this economic stuff. You've got, you know, the yellow brick roll road, you know, gold. Um, Dorothy in the book actually had silver shoes. The, when they shot the movie, they, they changed Dorothy's shoes from silver to ruby because that would look better in the color. And since the Wizard of Oz was one of the first color films, they really wanted to emphasize that. Uh, but anyways, so a lot of this stuff kind of overlapping the economic policy bleeding over into culture and so forth. Uh, incidentally, William, William Jennings Bryan, who lost to McKinley, would um, is the same William Jennings Bryan who was the prosecutor in the Scopes Monkey trial in the 1920s, the, um, which kind of put the teaching of evolution on the map. So we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. That's sorry. It all connects. Away. <laughs> it all connects. Teasers, teasers. These are just little. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's a good call. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. So, Come back for the. Uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, tune in next week for the Scopes <laughs> Monkey trial. That's right. It's going to be good. <laughs> um, 1900, the early 1900s is when when uh, Teddy Roosevelt first is recorded to have said, speak softly and carry a big stick. Um, oh, the, the Boxer Rebellion ended. Um, this was a, a Chinese anti um, anti foreigner uh Rebellion. They, you know, um, colonial powers had been manipulating and dominating and and abusing the Chinese for for a long time, and so the the Boxers Rebellion was an uprising against that. Uh, interesting because they practiced martial arts and and if I'm not mixing myself up, they um, you know believed in that it would grant them powers and stuff. Tragically, it, it didn't. Um, okay. I think I also had um, extinctions. Yes, if you could give us some things that went extinct. So, this is kind of a bummer, but uh, the the Honshu wolf, uh, the last Honshu wolf died in Japan in 1905. <clears throat> um uh, the Huia, a native bird of New Zealand, disappeared in 1907. A Polish wild horse, the Tarpon, the last one died in captivity. And the last known specimen of the Rocky Mountain locust was collected in 1902. So that's why if you've ever gone walking outside and you're like, where are the Rocky Mountain locusts? Now you know they're gone. <laughs> I wonder how much conservation there was actually done in the 1900s as far as you know, trying to find out what animals were endangered uh, or if that was a later development. Yeah, you know, um, there there was not a lot. I think it, it hadn't really sunk in for people. And extinctions are a tricky thing because unlike other changes, they are they're only notable for their absence. And absence is a hard thing to notice especially when you don't witness the absence. So, so for example, if, a, if a, you know, the, the passenger pigeon, for example, which, spoilers, that's not until next decade that it goes extinct. But um, 
if you if you grow up after 1911, you've never seen a passenger pigeon flying around. You, you don't notice that it's gone. And so it's absent from our collective memory. So th- these extinctions that just uh, this crawling list of growing list of extinctions, there's no sense of concern or urgency because as they go extinct, they fall out of our experience in our memory. So it's um, until you stop and look at it and say, whoa, lots of things are gone that used to be around. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, I, I don't know what he did for extinction, you know, and, and that kind of thing in particular, but interesting as an avid hunter, he was actually a voice for um, a voice for conservation in a practical sense that he he wanted conservation in order to preserve, you know, game and the great outdoors so that people could go experience it. And so he's actually known for, um, you know, initiating the creation of some national parks and so forth and helping to make that a thing. So um, I think indirectly, in some ways, he probably helped. And and we could consider Roosevelt and some of what he did is one of the early stages of what has now become, you know, the uh, big um, part of American government is managing federal land and maintaining and preserving our um our natural treasures so right. anyway and, and i know things like the the you know rocky mountain locusts are not um <laughs> you know particularly interesting or cool or cute and but quite tasty yeah that's right <laughs> um but they're you know recognizing that all of these things are an interlock interlacing part of our environment um, we recognize that even the ugly things, when they're harmed or or go extinct, they take a, a brick out of the wall of our natural world. So, okay, that's probably enough for now. Okay. Uh, thanks, Tim. Well, let's move back to Matt really quick. Matt, you're going to hit uh, natural disasters for us, I believe. Yeah, natural and and man-made and other okay. Dis- disasters, disasters and then. yes, disasters of of all sorts uh, that are not war-related anyway. Uh, so, you know, apparently the 1900s were really bad. Uh, we hear about disasters today and we hear about loss of life, but wow, uh, things went kind of crazy here and massive death tolls were commonplace. So let's, let's go in order. Uh, in 1900, you have a hurricane hitting the town of Galveston, Texas, and killing about 8,000 people. And wow. contrast that to Hurricane Katrina, where its death toll was not high at all. A lot of property damage, a lot of loss of livelihood, uh, but very few actual fatalities, uh, where you have so 8,833, by the way. Yeah, um, you got 8,000 knocked out in this hurricane that hits Galveston in uh, 1900. Um, so that was that was bad for that year, but it got better in 1901, where nothing much happened. And then it got way worse in 1902. Um, the big one is Mount Pele. Uh, erupts, destroying the town of Saint-Pierre in France uh, and killing 30,000 people. Um, I'm sorry, not... uh, But that's actually in the Caribbean, right? 
Yeah, I'm sorry. It's it's not in France. It's in Martinique. I apologize. Uh, which was a uh, French possession or possibly colony. I don't know. Um, but anyway, yeah, in the Caribbean, Martinique, Mount Pele, 30,000 people. Uh, going back to Europe for 1906, though, Mount Vesuvius erupts again and uh, kind of takes Naples, Napoli, that place, down a lot. Uh, but that's uh, overshadowed uh, by later that same month. The, April 1906 was a bad time to be in a big city. Uh, the San Francisco earthquake hits, which is one of the worst disasters in American history. A 17 point, or I'm sorry, 17, 7.8 or, or 9, uh, between 7.8 and 7.9 magnitude earthquake uh, hits San Francisco and pretty much levels it. Interestingly enough, six years earlier, the seismograph had been invented. Um but, yeah, this is the San Andreas Fault. San Francisco is, between the earthquake and the resultant fire, pretty much leveled, with estimates that up to 300,000 people were left homeless and at least 3,000 people were killed outright. Um, moving on, you have uh, a typhoon and subsequent tsunami hit Hong Kong uh, later that year in September, uh, killing an, another... 10,000 estimated people. Um, and then finally, the really big one, this is uh, actually, there's two really big ones. Um, in June 1908, you have what is known as the Tunguska event. You may have heard of this in cheap sci-fi or video games, but it is an explosion. And that that's it. It is just the Russian explosion. Um, Later, had that occurred later in, in in human history, the only possible man-made explanation would have been a nuclear weapon, a very large nuclear weapon. Um, it's probable that this was a meteor strike. Uh, but the result was that uh, about 2,000 square kilometers of forest in Russia were just flattened. Uh, it is the largest known energetic event in recorded human history. That's wild. I yeah. Um, yeah, it's... And, and the theory, uh, unfortunately, you don't have... Um, you know, this is 1908, so this is before the Russian dash cam videos that you find all over YouTube. So, uh, as far as I know, there's no images or, or photos or you know, we're way before when we'd have video of such right. an event. But it is theorized that this was, um, you know, comet or meteor uh, impact or air, bar or air burst. Uh, actually, definitely air burst. Um, but, but yeah, huge energetic event. Um, and then in December of that year, you have another large earthquake in the Mediterranean uh, followed by a tsunami that takes destroys Messina, Sicily, and Calabria. Calabria? I'm saying that wrong. Um, but that kills over 150,000 people right there. Uh, that's 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 inc I mean that's crazy. That those numbers. I mean that's like a war. Uh, yeah. That, I mean that's yeah. 
That's wild. Well, and that goes, uh, you, you know, you can talk about whether this is a natural or a, or a man-made disaster, but the, the final uh, one that is, is definitely, or, or, or that is, is kind of on the border between natural and man-made, is uh, the, the Chinese famines of 1907. Uh, and this one is, it, it's, it's, it, it, weirdly, it's because of too much rain which flooded uh, 40,000 square miles of, of land, made growing crops impossible. And, you know, the records are, are not great here, but the estimates are that it could have, the, the death toll as a result of this famine could have been up to 25 million people, um, which is even more insane. That's... Uh, that that is one of the greatest losses of human life following a single event in world history. Uh, if if those estimates are accurate and that it is up in that 25 million range, that would be the second worst famine in recorded history, next to another Chinese famine, which was um, well Mao Zedong's fault. Uh, but yeah, that that one was just insanely devastating uh, to China at that time. Uh, when you move on from the the natural disasters, you get to the non-natural disasters. And and here in the 1900s, we haven't really figured out uh, building codes or safety standards or a lot of this types of thing. And so you have uh, a number of of significant events, uh, you know man-made disasters where there is a, a loss of life that you just look at today and you think, wow, how could it have gotten that high? Um, you, you start in 1900 in May, there's the Schofield mine disaster in Schofield, Utah, and an explosion goes off and, and 200 miners are killed. Later in 1903, on December 30th, you have a theater fire, the Uruquois theater fire in Chicago, Deadliest theater fire in history, single and, and the deadliest single building fire in United States history. 602 people, at least, were killed in this fire. Um, so if you wonder why your movie theater has the little light strips that lead toward the exit, well, it's because, what? yeah, because without these types of things, without procedures, without emergency exits, you lose 600 people. In, a, in an instant. Um, going on to massive fire, you have the Great Baltimore Fire in 1904, uh, in February 7th and 8th, 1904. Um, and this one was one that actually spurred on some of these safety codes. Uh, downtown Baltimore essentially caught fire. A number of neighboring communities uh, sent firefighting equipment to go help Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and, and others. And when their their wagons got there, and, and these are admittedly primitive wagons, they couldn't connect to Baltimore's fire hydrants because the hoses were the wrong size. Hose, hoses and firefighting equipment was not standardized in the United States before then. And as a result of the Baltimore fire, you know, people started looking at this, people concerned with safety and, and public service uh, started putting out standards so that you would have these universal interfaces. And that's uh, 
you know, it's it's another step toward increased public safety. Uh, unfortunately, it took down 1,500 buildings in order to get there. So in, in the 1900s, you had bad fires number two, three, and four on the top mm-hmm. four worst fires list in uh, San Francisco, Jacksonville, and Baltimore, respectively. Good year um, to be a fire. Good year to be a firefighter. Yeah, not really. Um, And then then finally, you had a a number of of maritime accidents. Uh, You have a a couple different steamboats that that have issues that run aground and sink in in different places. Um, The the worst uh, sinking is the the Danish ocean liner SS Njorge. Njorge? I don't speak Danish. Uh, Anyway, yeah, that thing. Um, 635 people are lost when that one runs aground and sinks. Uh, the the worst, though, is another fire aboard the steamboat General Slocum in the East River in New York City, and at least 1,000 people are killed as a result of that one. Um, so that that's kind of a grim one to uh, to end on, but... Um, uh-huh. I the, think it the, does give us... Sorry. Yeah. Well, go ahead... I was going to say, I think it gives a good perspective on the fact that, like, you know, these days when there's an accident, and I'm not saying that, that we're doing anything. Well, uh, I guess the perspective is things are, are getting better. Um, yeah, it, and it gives the, you an appreciation for all those safety standards. The, you know, right. everything from the, the stewardess showing you how to inflate your, um, your, your life vest before every single flight. Um, to the, as I mentioned, the emergency exit signs and the theater lights, to the fact that you have standard interfaces with so much of the rescue equipment today. Um, It's all progress, but unfortunately, we only learn these lessons after the bad thing happens. So, yep. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's, yeah, it's important to just remember that hopefully we can learn from history. And that's why we're doing these podcasts is to remind us that there are things in our history that uh, that have had uh, consequences that uh, that we have adjusted life for uh, now. And if we don't remember those things, we could, you know, we could not remember why uh, firefighters are important or why those types of uh, lessons from the past. So, yeah, the, uh, one thing, then this is very important, I think uh, we don't overlook, uh, and we'll discuss this more in other podcasts, but um, women's suffrage, so we're, uh, first wave feminism, um, was in full swing uh, across, around the world, and Finland in 1906 gave women the right to vote. That was the first European country to do so. So uh, women were finally being allowed into universities um, across the world. And uh, it was an important time uh, in women's suffrage and uh, in feminism. So uh, we'll be moving on to the 1910s next uh, next podcast. So uh, until then, um, go back and brush up on your on your history. 